chapter 10. It's always good to be with the Alds Bible Church family. I love coming here. As I shared with you before, I think this is my sixth or seventh year in a row to come and spend one Sunday with you. you, When you see see a group of people uh, once a year, you kind of see how life changes them. I'm I'm still bald. (laughs) I don't know if you can get balder. I guess you can. I'll find out. Uh, beard's getting a little grayer probably when I first came. That, no, that's just me. Y'all look the same. Y'all haven't aged one bit. But uh, it's good to be with you again. <laughs> and uh, just thankful for uh, just the relationship that I've developed with you guys and with your pastors over the years. Um, Ryan asked us to fill in uh, a few Sundays uh, this year, and I, I, I wanted to get them, take them all myself just because I love coming out here. Uh, but I have I have to preach at the church I pastor, and uh, they want me there for sure. And uh, we have young guys who need opportunities and to be in the pulpit and to learn how to preach. And so you guys were very gracious and encouraging to Joseph McClung back in, I think, May he was here, maybe late April. And uh, you'll enjoy Joseph Stogner next Sunday. He's a, a young guy. Him and his family moved here from Louisville to be a part of our church and what we're doing. Uh, he's a teacher at Sterlington Middle. His wife is a teacher at Riser in West Renault. Uh, they got a uh, little four-year-old daughter and two twin boys who are about a year old. So we didn't see him for about a year, and now they've resurfaced. And uh, he's on path to become one of our elders. So I'll be praying for him as he prepares to come preach next week. Thank, for your, thank you for your continued prayers for our church. We're doing well. Continue to press the gospel forward in Monroe. I love somebody was telling me earlier how Ryan prays for us often. Uh, from from the front and uh, the pulpit, and so we're very grateful for that. We think about you guys as well. Me and Ron, we get together about once a month, and we're able to talk about life and pastoring and how we can pray for each other as we pastor our churches and shepherd our people, and I just love the good work that I see God doing in Ryan and through Ryan and Kelly as he shepherds this flock. Uh, he's, he's obviously called. Uh, his heart for you, his, his love of Jesus is evident to anyone who knows him. You've known him since he was a little guy, so some of you know his transformation even more than I do. And I uh, just love how much Jesus has his mind and his heart. And also thanks for your continued prayers for our family. It hasn't worked out the last few times to bring them. Um, my daughter had a, a migraine, my 10-year-old, really bad migraine this morning, so Jennifer's home with her and the littles. My teenage kids are working in the nursery at our church this morning. Maybe next time they can come. We have had a, the Sunday I was here last uh, was November, and we just got a foster baby in our home that previous week, who was a week old. And she's still with us, and maybe go, going home Tuesday. Uh, we'll have another court date to find out, or it could be another month. We don't know. But uh, So be praying for us as we deal with that emotion of saying goodbye. We, we knew all along she was not going to stay with us, so we've kind of... Uh, been preparing for this for a long time, uh, but her mom is ready. She's doing great, and we want we want her to go home. And my wife is ready to reload and say who's next, and take care of somebody else. And so she's been a joy uh, in our home as well. I want to spend time uh, this morning in the Book of Proverbs, looking at a topic that we don't cover enough in churches, uh, especially considering how much of our lives is taken up by this activity. And I'm referring to the activity of work. Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. So along with Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon that make up the Old Testament wisdom literature, plus some of the Psalms, plural, when you're talking about multiple Psalms. Uh, And the purpose of this wisdom literature is 
how do I describe and apply God's commands to everyday life? So wisdom literature is incredibly practical, just really into the nuts and bolts of everyday life. So in Proverbs, you won't find much mention of the law or the temple or religious rituals and regulations, but you get a lot of teaching and descriptions about what life looks like as you strive to live out the commands and realities of being God's people in everyday life. Proverbs gives us the straightforward way of looking at life. Proverbs describes to us how most of life works most of the time. Most of the time in life, you reap what you sow. If you obey God, you live with integrity, you make wise choices, most of the time, life goes well for you. Now, Proverbs are not promises, and so while life is mostly like this, it's not 100% guaranteed to work out this way because our world is fallen and sinful and infected with sin, as we saw from just this weekend, we see all the time. And so Proverbs can't be claimed, well, I claim that promise to be true all the time. We can't do that with Proverbs. They're not God's commands. They're not realities about God that are true all the time. They're proverbial wisdom. Most of the time, this is how life works. Job is the counter-argument to Proverbs. Job lived the life of Proverbs more than anyone else on the face of the earth at the time, but he lost everything except for his life and his wife in one day. So Job would say, I did it all right. What went wrong? Well, that's life in a sin-cursed world. Proverbs is mostly organized as a loose collection of sayings and proverbial wisdom. And one of the best ways to study Proverbs is through uh, grouping together related topics. Marriage, parenting, money, wise living, foolish living, laziness, sexual temptation, life, death, friendships, on and on you could go studying through Proverbs. The topic today is work. A practice I've tried to maintain uh, each month is you, you take the day of the month that, you, that, that, that you're on and you read that corresponding Proverbs. So today's the 4th of August, you would read Proverbs 4. And Christians have done this for, for a long, long time. And you work your way through all 31 Proverbs every single month, 12 times a year, to fill your mind and your heart with God's wisdom about how to live life and how to navigate life in a very practical, practical way. I even have a Bible at home where I, for, for one season of life I took, uh, I made little symbols for the different topics. And as I would read a proverb, I would say, okay, this, this passage is about money, so I put a little dollar sign. And this next verse is about uh, marriage, so I put maybe a ring for a wedding ring. And, and this passage is about sexuality or sexual temptation, so I put a, a, a flame because uh, sex is good and healthy and life-giving and warm and attractive within the confines of marriage, like fire is good within the confines of a stove or oven or a fireplace, but outside of the confines of marriage, it causes great destruction. And Proverbs are filled with warnings about temptations and, um, and, and being unfaithful sexually. But today we look at work. Proverbs and other places in the Bible do talk about our relationship with work, maybe more than we realize, and thankfully the Bible is very clear about many aspects of what a healthy relationship with work should look like, which is good. This is an activity that on average we'll spend about 90,000 hours of our life doing. And that's on average paid work. That's not like chores around the house or volunteer things that we do in the community or a church or wherever. It's a huge part of our life. So we need to know what a healthy, thriving relationship with this activity should look like. So before jumping into how God's created us to have a thriving relationship with work, let's look at a few broken or insufficient views of work. I'm not going to refute them all now, but just list them and, then, and, and define them. 
First of all, an insufficient view or broken view of work. My job is who I am. So you'll have people come up to you and, and they'll ask you, so, so what do you do? And sometimes, depending on if, you know, their personality, I may, well, I breathe, um, I sleep, I live. What do you do? Now, you know what that question means. They want to know, what do you do for a living? What do you spend most of your time doing to earn an income? But that question kind of brings out this idea of how much we tie our identity in our culture to what we do for a living. What we do for a living is who we are, especially in an individualistic Western society. Uh, Achievement, success, doing well, making something of yourself. Even as believers, we can get caught up in that so that we root who we are into simply what we accomplish or achieve and how successful we are in our careers. The problem with that, when that plan doesn't work out or is threatened or success doesn't happen or we age and get to a point where mentally, physically we can't work anymore or do the same job or do it as well or when we lose our job, if we have tied our identity into our job more than Jesus then our whole world comes crashing down. And we are threatened to the very core of our being if what we do is who we are. We have a greater identity than just our jobs. So don't give in to this broken view of work that our culture uh, prioritizes. Um, Secondly, my job provides money to do what I really want to do. A second broken view of work. My job gives me money to do what I really want to do. For many, this is, uh, may not even seem like it's broken or insufficient because it's so common. I have to work to have money, so I'll pick something that makes me the least miserable, provides the most money and the least amount of time and energy, so then I can have leisure time possible to do the things I really want to do. So we live for the weekends. We live for vacation and time off. The ultimate solution to our great work problem would be to win the Powerball. Or to create an app like Flappy Bird and make millions of dollars and not have to work a normal job like anybody else. Or some other uh, get-rich-quick plan. Um, It seems like God cares more about our work than to have us waste 90,000 hours of our life doing something that we're only doing to make money to do other things. So there's something more, a higher view of work, than just, I'm just doing it to get a paycheck. A third broken view of work is my job is only a platform for the gospel. Again, it seems like a legitimate perspective of work, and certainly seeing ourselves as missionaries wherever God sends us, even to the workplace, is part of who we are as Christians. But some fall into the trap of seeing their job as only about sharing the gospel. So work performance and doing a good job can be sacrificed if gospel opportunities can be justified. So I don't have to be a super great employee because I'm there to share Jesus with other employees. I can coast and do a half-hearted job because I'm just there to share the gospel. It seems like God has a bigger and better plan than to make His great and mighty name and salvation known through sending His people into the workplace to be mediocre employees. Seems like He's got a better plan than that. Lastly, My job is less important because I'm not in vocational ministry. Again, a broken is sufficient view of work. My job is less important because I'm not in vocational ministry. 
This has been more of a problem in the church over the last several hundred years, the elevation of the sacred space and sacred jobs within the church over secular jobs. Maybe more common today to call it the pulpit is more important calling than anything done by those in the pew. Is that really true? Is that really what God has ordained for his church and his people? We'll deal with that insufficient view of work as well today. The contrast between these broken and insufficient views of God's uh, of work and God's best can be seen in the true story made famous by the movie Chariots of Fire. He had two British athletes competing for England in the 1924 Olympics, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrams. Both sprinters, both basically had the same job. They trained identically. They ate the same foods. They went to work and did the same job every single day. And they were equally successful. They both won gold medals in their respective events. Harold Abrams won the 100-meter sprint, and Eric Liddell won the 400-meter sprint. Yet, despite having the same job, achieving the same success, these two men could not have been more different. At one point, Abrams tells his trainer, I'm 24 and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. He's a hard worker. He has success. It isn't enough for him. Liddell's sister, on the other hand, confronts him at one point. She's concerned that all the energy and effort he's putting into chasing an Olympic gold medal is going to distract him from what God's really called him to do, to go be a missionary to China. If you know the story of Eric Liddell, you know that's eventually how he spends the rest of his life sharing the gospel in China. And he responds with his now famous quote, Jenny, Jenny, talking to his sister, you've got to understand, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So ask yourself, be honest this morning. When you show up to your job this week, Is the attitude of your heart in your job more like that of Harold Abrams or more like that of Eric Liddell? Do you believe God's best life for you includes a healthy, thriving relationship with work? Or have you mistakenly relegated that to an area of your life where you just need to endure it? Only so many more years to retirement. If I can just grind out these last few years. Is it possible God desires more for us in our work? Let's see from Proverbs how that is possible. Number one, work is a necessary good God has created. We have to be reminded first that work predates the curse of sin entering creation, and therefore work is not a product of sin. One of my most favorite things to remind my kids of most often in life, when we expect things out of you and have chores for you to do, it is not us causing you to sin. You have to choose, will you obey God or will you obey mom and dad? Work is was in creation before sin. Sin cursed work, made it more difficult and hard, yes, but God himself worked for six days in creation and rested on the seventh. God himself put man and woman in the garden to tend it and keep it. When God chose to incarnate himself and show up in the world as the God-man, God in flesh, he chose to do that not in, in the skin of a humble peasant carpenter. Not a philosopher, not a military general, not a king, uh, an earthly king, but a guy who made tables and chairs and plows. And there seems to be strong biblical evidence that in some measure, we're going to be working and serving and staying busy in the eternal state. Not just floating around on clouds and, and, and playing harps and wearing diapers and stuff like that. This crazy hallmark version of heaven. 
The heaven reality that we're going to experience, heaven and earth come down. The new earth is recreated and made new. We're going to be here doing who knows what without the curse of sin, enjoying a new creation, new heavens and earth. Whenever I have one of those days or one of those projects where everything goes smooth, everything works out perfect, nothing, I can find every tool like that. Um, uh, nothing gets broken. I don't have to run to the store for extra stuff. Just everything falls into place. I remind myself, well, this is how all of our work in the eternal state will be. It's going to be work, but it's going to go smoothly without the drudgery and the frustration. You see this value in work throughout Proverbs. So a few passages I'll point your attention to. Proverbs 10, 4. Idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. Now, again, these aren't 100% true biblical promises that always work out, but are generally true. So generally speaking, you work hard and you accumulate some measure of wealth. Of course, depending on your culture and context, that will look different. So wealth or riches in the first century versus wealth or riches in the 21st century look very different than maybe a third world country today or when the Proverbs were written. But generally, there's a correlation between hard work and financial gain. Certainly, there are wealthy people who don't work hard. They just have inherited everything or has been given to them. And there are really hardworking people who remain poor. But looking deeper in the Proverbs, you see a value on work. In fact, the word diligently carries the idea of smart work. In the language of the Old Testament, that word diligently refers to a string on a bow that is tightly strung to provide an accurate shot. I've heard my whole life, work smarter, not harder. I never knew that philosophy came from the Proverbs. Work is also valued in a passage like Proverbs 27, verse 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Whoever looks after his master will be honored. Proverbs 27, 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Whoever looks after his master will be honored. So even the most menial task can be honored and has value. Someone tending a fig tree. Someone looking after, being a caretaker, looking after their master, taking care of the household, or, or, or serving their master, whoever that was. This whole idea of the most menial task having honor and value was a foreign concept to the ancient civilizations that were more divided into classes. Lower class people with less dignity did the most menial work. By the time of the Greco-Roman Empire, <coughs> the highest forms of work would be the jobs with the least engagement with the physical realities. Because in the Greco-Roman mind, in the Gnostic philosophies that they had developed, this physical earth was to be avoided. It was evil, inherently evil. So you wanted to spend your reality separated from it, not engaged in it, thinking in the abstract, in the ethereal plane. The physical world was despised. If you had to work with your hands, you were part of the lowly people. The upper class in the Greco-Roman world were those who worked with their minds, the scholars, philosophers, and thinkers. We use the language today, white-collar job, blue-collar job. You work with your mind, you work with your back. And what we do when we give in to that philosophy is we devalue certain kinds of work that God says, this work has value and honor. This mentality was picked up eventually by the Roman Catholic Church 
Despite the dignity of Jesus as a carpenter and Paul as a tent maker, the church eventually adopted the same kind of mentality in elevating the sacred work of the priest or pastor above the menial work of the secular laborer. <coughs> so another benefit of the Reformation was Luther's ability to see how our justification in the works of Jesus and not our work turns that whole mentality upside down. It was Martin Luther who said, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaids. When the milkmaids are milking the cows, that is God at work. And the Roman Catholic Church at the time would say, that's ridiculous. God's not involved in anything like that. His point, and it's from his exposition of Psalm 147, was that God's calling of vocation was not just something extended to those employed by the church or the monks, but all people, all people are called by God to a task that carries on the work of God on the earth. It was common in Luther's day to view those employed by the church or those living in monasteries as those who could earn more of God's favor because they were truly doing God's work. But Luther himself lived as a monk. And his final evaluation of himself was not how righteous he had become, but how unrighteous he was and how desperate he was for someone to make him right with God. And this led to his embrace of the justification by grace alone through faith alone as a gift of God to us through the personal work of Jesus, which is the, the flame of the Protestant Reformation. Jesus did everything necessary for me to be right with God and then gives that to us as a gift of right standing to us by his grace when we believe and trust in Jesus. So my works, no matter what I do, don't add one single thing to my standing with God in Jesus' eyes because my works are never enough. My works aren't good enough. <coughs> Luther's conclusions were then, if my religious works make me right with God, then my religious works would be a higher form of labor. But because my religious works don't make me right with God, then religious work is no longer seen as superior form of labor than any other kind of work. And the fact that his right standing with God was a gift of God's grace was not something he's achieved or earned, then, then he was free from living a life trying to perform or achieve to justify his existence. Jesus did everything necessary for us to be right with God. And that sets us free. That doesn't enslave us to jump through hoops and earn God's love and God's favor. That makes me free to love God and love my neighbor because God has graciously and, and freely loved me. And I no longer have to do stuff to prove or earn my right standing with God. I just have to trust Jesus and then go do the works that God's prepared beforehand for me to do. And I can do that in any area of life. Because of all this goodness came into my life by God's grace and His awesomeness and not because I'm awesome, I see value and worth in other people, even if they aren't Christian. So just because someone is a Christian doesn't mean they are automatically a good parent or a good employee or a good boss or a good business owner or a good business person. Just being a Christian doesn't guarantee that that's going to happen. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said the best case for Christianity are Christians. And the worst case against Christianity are Christians. And that's true. We go about our life appreciating, the, we can then go about our life appreciating the gifts and skills and abilities of all people because it's all evidence of God's grace to humanity, His common grace. 
good art, good music, good food, good drink, well-run businesses, good products that make life better, good movies, good literature, athletic ability. These are all causes for us to worship God for His grace who gives these gifts to all of humanity. The hope is when people receive these gifts, they will look back to the giver of these gifts and worship Him. Some do. Not everyone does. But we, as those who have received the same gifts through our, through our Savior Jesus Christ, we do worship the giver of these gifts. We don't worship the gifts. We worship the giver of the gifts. And we can appreciate and value all who share in God's common grace and all who do good work. Because work is good. And all kinds of work can be used by God to accomplish His purposes and make Himself known. Now, certainly there are footnotes to this. So, so going through all that, there's still a place for vocational ministry. All right? I don't want Ryan to come back and not have a job. It's okay to make a living from preaching the gospel. Elders and pastors who labor well, Paul tells us, should be shown double honor. But that doesn't mean the job of a pastor is superior to any other job. It doesn't mean we have more access to God than you have access to God. We don't have a direct line to God's throne room that gets there any quicker than your prayers get there. The fact that all kinds of work have value and dignity and honor also doesn't mean it's okay to work any job. There are some industries and careers and jobs that, inc that increase oppression and injustice in our world, and we hope one day they no longer exist. You don't have to pray about if it's God's will for you to work in the pornography industry. We want that industry, that billion, billion dollar industry, to disappear, and one day it will. You don't have to pray about uh, working a job in the abortion industry. We want that multi-million, probably billion-dollar industry to disappear from the face of the earth. And one day it will. But we can elevate the labors of others. We got two little boys, most of you know, four-year-old and two-year-old, Tim and Noah. They love anything with an engine. So garbage truck, garbage day is a big day in our house. You know, it's on, it's on Fridays. They hear the garbage truck coming. They run to the windows, or if they're outside, they run outside. And they're just amazed at this big, loud truck that picks this can up and dumps the garbage in. And these men, and we're able to talk to them about, these guys are working hard. These guys are strong. These guys are providing for their family. These guys are doing a, a job that a lot of people don't want. Now, I realize I'm in Union Parish, so you may not know what a garbage truck is or a garbage man. We lived in Union Parish for 11 years, the first two churches I pastored. And I know what it's like to take care of your own garbage and to actually throw away toys on Christmas Eve, and you got to actually get in the dumpster uh, to find whatever you threw away. And uh, the, the green, uh, green dumpsters, or some people call them swap shops, whatever you want to call them, uh, I know what that life is like, but when we move to the big city, you pay taxes, and this guy shows up and takes care of your garbage, and it's amazing. And we're able to value these guys with our boys and talk about how good this work is and wave to them, be nice to them, and give them a Christmas gift and stuff like that. So how do we speak about the people we see working around us? How do we treat the cashier, the waiter, the teacher, the nurse, the oil change guys, the bus driver, the government official, the maintenance man, the cleaning crew? How do we talk about those careers to our kids and grandkids? How do we show them honor and dignity and value as image bearers doing God's work? Because work is good. and God's best life for us includes work because God created work is good. And we are wired to work, and whatever work we do can be, God can be seen. So that's the first thing. First of all, God created work. Work is a necessary good that God has created. Secondly, it is possible to love your work. God hasn't made work 
simply as a means to earn a check to get to leisure time to do what you really love to do. But you're going to have to dig deep into why you have the job you have. Does the job you have include the necessary elements that allow us to love our work? Necessary elements of community and calling. Those are essential if you're going to love your work. Community and calling. We see the importance of our work blessing our community in a passage like Proverbs 10.5. The son who gathers during summer is prudent. The son who sleeps during harvest is disgraceful. Now the writer of Proverbs could have simply said the man. The man who sleeps during harvest is disgraceful. The man who gathers during summer is prudent. But by saying son, he's implying a a relationship within community that affects the community. If the son of the family doesn't go out and labor during the harvest, it's disgraceful because the family suffers. There's a relational component to his work. But if the son of the family does go out and gather harvest during the summer, the family is prudent and wise. The family is blessed. The community is blessed because he's working hard. Our jobs and careers aren't simply about self-fulfillment and how to make myself happy with no concern about the people around me. Choosing a career is not simply about how much money can I make or what are the benefits that I get or what do I get out of what I put in. There is a community component that has to be measured if you're going to love your work. How can this job, how can this career bless and add value to the community that I'm a part of? Dorothy Sayers wrote, wrote this, She said, the habit of thinking of work as something someone does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think otherwise. In our modern view, doctors do not primarily doctor to relieve suffering, but to make a lot of money for them and their family. People become lawyers not because they have a passion for justice, but to become financially well off. She's writing that in England right after World War II. She said one of the surprises after the war for the English men who served in the army was how for the very first time in their lives there was this this surge in happiness and contentment among the men of England after World War II. Why? You just spent four or five years fighting in a war. There was higher happiness and satisfaction because even though their work was incredibly hard, their pay was miserable, the benefits were non-existent, the job Uh, uh, dangers of their job were profound. All things that we think are matter, that matter, how much money am I going to make? How safe am I going to be? How long can my career be? All the things we think matter, their happiness and satisfaction were higher because they were giving their labors for the good of others. They were working hard to save their nation from becoming part of the Nazi, Nazi regime. An essential component to loving your work Does it bless the communities that you're in? And and maybe it does. You just struggle to see it because we get so bogged down in the misery of our jobs. But it's not just community that's important. Calling is also important. Doing what God's wired and created you to do. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a person skilled in his work? He will stand in the presence of kings. He will not stand in the presence of the unknown. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a person skilled in his work? He will stand in the presence of kings. He will not stand in the presence of of the unknown. The value here of recognizing someone skilled at their work. Sometimes we struggle to love our jobs because God's wired us for a different job, which doesn't mean go to your boss tomorrow morning and say, I got to quit. Just heard a sermon yesterday. 
preacher told me if I'm not gifted and skilled in this job, I should quit and go find the job of my dreams. I'm not saying that, all right? You should walk this out slowly in community, not just quickly and irrationally. But we can begin a process in community, led by the Spirit, with the Word of God, of praying and considering, considering if we're operating in the area of our calling and gifting. Of all the jobs I've had, the first real job, not just mowing yards, but the first like real job where I had to pay taxes was, was when I was 14, working at Baskin Robbins in West Monroe. They're coming back, by the way. Baskin Robbins come back to West Monroe. Uh, so over the years, I've had these jobs. That's uh, 20, 28 years. Over these years of having jobs, probably the most miserable job I've had was when I was a part-time bank teller when I was in college. Just sitting and waiting, it's retail, customer service. So if you do that or have done that, you know it's just in waves. It's waves of nothing or waves of everything. There's no happy medium. We're just steady. So you're sitting there so busy you can't breathe and eat or so dead you're going to pull your hair out from boredom. And uh, plus I'm selling all these products I had no passion to sell, no passion to sell credit card or credit cards or financial services. I just didn't care about it at all. But by God's grace, I continued to show up and do the job for the three years I had the job while in college, while God was preparing me to go be a teacher, which was the first career I had before I became a pastor. And we've all had jobs like that. Maybe you have that job now. And it could be you're miserable because your heart isn't right with the Lord, and you don't value the work God's given you to do, or it could be you're not in the right field and need to slowly and with wisdom pursue next steps. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God has prepared work for all of us to do for the rest of our lives until this life is over. And a big, big part of that is going to happen in the context of a job. And so you don't have to live with angst over this. You don't have to lose sleep over this. You don't have to live with frustration over this. You can trust your Father in heaven. He has gone ahead of you to prepare the good works already that you will do for the rest of your days. So he's already out ahead of you, preparing you, preparing the good works so that you will be right where you need to be at the right time doing the work that he's called and created you to do. Trust him. Trust the people he's put in your life to help you figure this out and see your work as doing God's work that he's prepared for you to do. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, he tells the story of John Coltrane. John Coltrane was a jazz saxophonist who had a religious experience in 1957. He writes about this in his liner notes to one of his most famous albums, The Love Supreme. He says, During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked God to give me the means and privilege to make others happy through music. One night, the story goes, he's performing a Love Supreme a song that is a song of praise to God. And being a saxophonist, he got on stage and played lights out, played his heart out, played beyond anything he thought he could ever have done, beyond anything he'd ever conceived of doing. One of the best things he's ever done, when it was over, the story goes, he stepped down and others heard him say, Nunc Dimittis, Nunc Dimittis. It's a Latin expression that comes from the story of old Simeon in Luke chapter 2. When old Simeon was waiting in the temple to see the Messiah, something God had revealed to him he would see before he died. And in comes Mary and Joseph and the little infant Jesus. Simeon walks up and praises the Lord because he's seen the Messiah with his eyes and says, Now let thy servant depart in peace 
according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Nunc dimittis is a Latin expression that summarizes that entire expression of Simeon. Coltrane's basically saying, I've done it. I've reached the pinnacle. I've done what God's created me to do, what God's wired me to do. Now I can rest in peace. We can love our jobs when we see the value and benefit our jobs bring to our communities and when we are operating in the gifting and calling God has given us. So have conversations in the communities that you're in. How does your job bless the community that you go to? I was a, a chaplain to a natural gas storage facility not very far from here for a couple of years. And, uh, and I would go in there and remind those guys, you know, you're stuck back here in the woods in this facility. These eight guys working this shift work 24-7. There were two guys always out there, sometimes more. And it doesn't seem like what you're doing is blessing your community. But I'm telling you, every time I turn on my stove to cook something or turn on the oven to bake some cookies or turn on the, the gas fireplace, you're part of bringing blessing and warmth and joy to our home because of this job that you do. Whether that gas that you're storing and sending out and bringing it back in actually gets to my house or not, it's getting to somebody's house. And my house stays warm in the winter because you're doing your job out here and doing it well. So sometimes we just need to get in community and talk about, okay, how does my job bless the community that I'm a part of? Some jobs is easy. You're a teacher, you're a firefighter, it's easy to see how you're blessing your community. Some jobs it might be a little bit harder. But talk about it in community and talk about if you're operating in the way that God has wired you to operate. Lastly, and there's more we could get into, but just for today, see your work in light of God's work for us in the gospel. So see your work in light of God's work for us in the gospel. Some of you might be seriously thinking, this is too much pie-in-the-sky optimism. Your situation, your job, and struggle are so bad, so uniquely bad, you're so miserable, there's no way out. You think I've lost my mind suggesting that you can love your job. Because you're, you, you just don't know, dude. You don't know me. You don't know how bad my job is, how bad my boss is, how bad my coworkers are. Really, there are so many people who hate their jobs. It's a, it's a huge mission field for us who have jobs to figure this out and then go into the mission field of the workplace and share this good news of the gospel about work. Proverbs fifteen nineteen, The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. But the path of the upright is a level highway. Now, this seems to be straightforward. If you're lazy, life will be hard. If you're upright, life will be easy. But if you think about it, does that line up with reality? I mean, you work hard, you work hard, and it's not easy. You keep working hard, and it never gets easier. It just continues to be hard because the job God's put you in is a hard job. So what in the world is, is happening here? Well, let's think about it a little bit more. Who are the upright? If Psalm 130 verse 3 is true, Lord, if you keep an account of iniquities, who could stand? So if none of us are righteous, no, not one, if none of us are upright, then who is upright? There's only one. There's only one. Jesus, who actually took on the curse of sin, which, by the way, was signified by God in Genesis 3 as thorns in the ground, which we would have to work, who himself took on a crown of thorns. And so see Jesus and the gospel in your hard work. When work is hard, when work is a struggle, when the hope is gone, you don't know how you can go on. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. See the work that he did for you and providing your salvation and your hope. See that Jesus, not your job, has to be the source of your hope and joy. Your job 
even on its best day and its best season at the pinnacle of success and happiness and joy, your job will never satisfy you like Jesus will. Because even if your job is going great, it's not going to stay there. It's not always going to be great. You're going to one day have to quit working because your body's breaking down. <clears throat> your job will never satisfy you like Jesus will. He has come to do everything possible to make us right with God and give us new life and to make us new people. And he's coming again to make all things new, to reverse the curse, to return the tree of life, to bring us in an eternal state where we will work and love and enjoy Jesus and his people forever. As bad as it is, it will not always be bad. This cursed work in this world is coming to an end. Heaven is coming. This is why Paul could write in Ephesians 6, 5-9, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, in, in our context we can replace that with employees, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. As masters... And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Slaves and masters, employees, employers, see Jesus in your labors. If you hate your job, Jesus knows and is right there with you. And you can look beyond your job to Jesus and receive hope, joy, peace, and life from him to help you do that job while you evaluate if you should be doing another job. And even if you can't do another job, you're stuck in a job, Jesus is with you to help you have a change of mind, change of heart, change of perspective until the day comes that you no longer have to work because Jesus has come back. And when we work then, it will all be good. In your labors, look to Jesus. Work for him because he's already worked for you. He alone is the perfect boss, the perfect king, the perfect ruler. Jesus will never grind you into the ground like our earthly bosses do, but will continually supply your heart with his peace, love, joy, and hope. And if you don't know Jesus in this saving relationship, then maybe today is the day of your salvation. As you admit that you're a sinner, you turn from loving your sins, and you trust in Jesus, who did everything necessary to make you right with God. You embrace Jesus, realizing all along he's been embracing you. Father, thank you so much for the work of Jesus that makes life joy, hope, peace, no matter what circumstance we're in, no matter what job we have, no matter how hard it is, how difficult our boss is, how difficult our coworkers are, no matter how hard the struggle is, because of Jesus who transcends all of our circumstances, we can have life, joy, peace, hope, love. Thank you that Jesus did all the work necessary to make that possible. And thank you that Jesus is coming again. And one day we will labor and we will love every second of it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.